Welcome back for another week. We will start Perek Yud Bet. Our learning is dedicated to Lui Nishma Sufka Bad Yaakov Alevi, Rufush Lema Pratila Bad Yabet Chaim Chaya Tova, Brahavigal Bas Rachel Gito, Yidid Chayim, Benaviv Rufka Chayim, Moshali Melech Levi Ben Basha, Shalom and Chaya Sara Shadokhim for all in need. So, for those of you that actually pay really close attention to the recording and notice that the background is a little bit different, it is true. I'm recording um, not in Eretz Yisrael, but on a trip to America. I thank uh, my hosts for their hospitality and allowing me to use their home to record today. So we start Parakud Bet. Parakud Bet is a tricky parak because we begin the the change of pace. We've been used to story after story since the beginning. And there is riveting drama from start till now. And now all of a sudden, the text slows down and goes into minute details. And it's going to be an interesting question and a challenge over the next couple of weeks to see how does that speak to us. I'm hopeful that the content, nonetheless, has important messages that we're able to understand despite the fact I think it's a big one, that there's no narrative to uh, to hear. I, I, I wondered since the very beginning, would we read every pasuk? Would we skip a little bit here and there? Um, and in my mind, I always was concerned what was going to happen when we got to Sefer Shoftim, because biblical poetry is my downfall, and we were going to have to do Shira Devora. How are we going to read all those psukim? And in my head, I was already starting to think, okay, maybe we'll cover it topically, something along those lines. But then I realized just a few weeks ago that we're actually going to find ourselves in that situation already now. Are we going to read every city in the next 10 prakim or so? Will we lose our audience because it's not as exciting? So I hope, I hope, I hope we can figure out a balance to make it all work. These are the kings of the land that B'nai Yisrael conquered. Uh, and they took their land, Be'ever Hayarden Mizracha. Now we're talking about the other side, the east side of the Jordan, Minachalar known and Har Charmon, Mizracha, from Nachalar known all the way up to the Charmon and everything in the middle. Sichon Melacha Moria, Yosheve Cheshbon, Moshel Mearawer, Shal Svat Nachalar known, Vetoka Nachal, Vachatia Gilava, Yabok, Vanachal Gevul, Beneamon. So all of a sudden, we take a step back and we're told all about the land of Sichon, Sichon, the king of Emori. Now, that's interesting because that is not a conquest by Yehoshua. That is a conquest that we know from Sefer by Midbar at the hands of none other than Moshe Rabbeinu. From the Arava all the way to the Kinneret on the eastern side. If you've ever looked to book a hotel by the Kinneret, you'll notice that the Kinneret has two sides to it. It has a side by Tiberia, which is the more common place that people go. And there's the other side, all the way on the other side, that goes into the area by the Golden Heights. You could take a great view of it on Google Images on Google Maps. So we're told, no, that's the side of the Kinneret that it was. Okay. And it was the borders of whom? Og, the king of Bashan, who was one of the remainders of the Rifaim, the giants who lived in Ashtod and Drake. We're given all of this land. But again, this is not land that we know about from Yehoshua. It's land that we know about from Sefer Bamidbar. What's interesting is also the, the, it's attributed not to Moshe Rabbeinu, 
but it's attributed to Klal Yisrael. If you look at Pasuk Aleph, the Jewish people did that. Why? Why does it leave that Moshe Rabbeinu? See, the Barabinel says, Kisharatzal is for Mlachim, Aaret Shekavash Yehoshua, Ratzal is for Bethila, Mashakavash Moshe Rabbeinu. First, says the Barabinel, we go back to the times of Moshe Rabbeinu. What did Moshe conquer? And afterwards, we're going to go and review what Yehoshua conquered with all B'nai Yisrael. And if at the end, we're going to see shortly it's going to attribute it to Moshe Rabbeinu. Why then does it not tell us that it was Moshe Rabbeinu did it? So Abar Benel is a great answer. It's a good question. If it's Moshe's actions, Moshe's war, he's the general. He's the one with the blueprint and he did all of this, then attribute it to him. Perhaps you could suggest that because Moshe Rabbeinu only defeated two kings, and Yeshua 31, since it was a smaller conquest, which is an interesting question that you could ask on the Abar Benel. It might be 31 kings versus two, but the city of Hebron, the city of Yarmut, is one king. It's, it's a tiny area. And yet the area of Sichon and the area of Og was a huge, huge area of land. And yet, 2 verses 31, says the Abar Benel, it's not covered to Moshe Rabbeinu, so Moshe Rabbeinu sort of sides, sidestepped for just a moment. Okay? Rabag says something unbelievable. He says the reason why it's written this way is because even though Moshe Rabbeinu was amazing, the greatest leader of the Jewish people, so many superlatives that you can add to Moshe Rabbeinu's resume, the most important thing to understand is that the, the win, the victory, is not Moshe Rabbeinu's schut, but rather it is the promise that God made to Avram Yisrael Yaakov. It's the schut avot, the, more than that even, it's the, the, the kritat brit, the covenant that was cut between Hashem and, and the avot, that is the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu was successful. It's an interesting take on it, but in both cases, both the Abar Benel and the Ral Bag are addressing the question as to why we go through the first five psukim without knowing anything whatsoever about Moshe Rabbeinu's part in this. We, of course, know Tanakh so well that we know the story and we're familiar with it. But for someone who doesn't know it, they might sit there and read it and say, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe the Ben Yisrael did do it. But say the Yerel Bag, say the Yerel there's reasons specifically why that is the case. Pasuk Vav, Moshe Eved Hashem Reisel Hikum, ah, introduces Moshe Eved Hashem, he's the one who did it, Uvenei Yisel Hikum, with the Jewish people. Right now, Moshe Eved Hashem Yerushalayim, Uvenei Yisel Hikum, and he gave it as a portion. He, he started the, conquest, the division of the land, not just the conquest of the land, by giving part of it to Reuven, God, and Chatzit, Shevet, Menashe. Okay, beautiful. The, the Malbim says something beautiful. He says, You might think that he did this on his own. It's not true. He did it based on Hashem. Hagam el it's not part of Eretz Yisrael. The Jewish people were told, 
conquer the land, then expand the borders. Don't worry about expanding the borders while you don't have the land conquered. The reason why he did this is Moshe Eved Hashem. He's Moshe Eved Hashem. He's doing at the he's doing the uh, the calling of God. God says do it, so he does it, even though it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to conquer land at this point and to give it to someone when it's not yet its proper time. But it is the proper time. Why? Because Moshe Eved Hashem got his tzivoy from Hashem. I want to share with you a beautiful medrash. It's the medrash Tanfuma. The medrash Tanfuma says something that I think is important to, rem- to rem- remember. God says to the Jewish people, I swear, God says, I'm going to go do battle, but I'm going to give you all the credit for it. He says, this could not possibly be any different from a king. Think about the greatest emperors in the history of the world. Good people, bad people, more often than not. But these people, what is it that they want? They want to be known as someone who's great. They want to be able to put their, their name in the books and the annals of history. So if the world conquest to date was this big, it's got to be this big. If it was that big, it's got to be that big. Each subsequent emperor says, I have to raise the bar higher. I have to conquer more. I have to be more powerful. Why? Because that's the only way that my name will find its place in the history books. Otherwise, what's the purpose? What do you need me for? I'm just a rung or two or many rungs below those that have come before me. Says HaKadosh Baruch it's not the case. I could wipe out the whole world in a second, he says. When I destroy the nations, he says, it's not me. The king, the emperor, he goes, he goes to war. He sends his troops, his generals in the front. He goes in the back. If they win, they come and put the crown on his head and say, it's your win. God is not that way. He wins and gives the crown to Israel. We're familiar with that from Tillam. We say it every Shabbos morning in Davning. He gives us the credit. Our pasuk right here. God gives credit to it. You can only credit others when you're so great that you don't need it. There's an insecurity that most people have, which is why they covet the the spotlight or the credit. I'm nervous if I don't get the credit. If if it's not me, then you know what happens? Someone else will get the credit for it. So I have to put my name in a prominent place. I sign my, I sign my, my famous artworks, not mine. Um, but, but that's such an important piece of it. We, we do that because we're nervous that someone else will get the credit for it. God says, I don't care. You know, the greatness of the, the greatness of the moment of Parakriya Yamsov is that he goes at the front of the line. It is so against the grain of what the leaders of the old world did. And even for the most part to this very day, they say that that's one of the greatest parts of Sahal, that they, that the, 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 the commander says, everybody, everybody follow me. 
but that's not the case by most of the rest of the world and certainly not by kings. They stay in their, in their palaces under the protection of the, their guard and then they come there for the victory lap. Ah, oh, this was me. Says the Medrash Tanchuma, that's not how God operates. Amazing. God gives the Jewish people all the credit. Perhaps that's even a piece of where it is here. Moshe as the leader shows, Yeshua as the leader shows, the credit is not ours. It's B'nai Yisrael. Perhaps the Medrash offers an insight into why the Psukim leave out Moshe for the first five Psukim and only insert him in Pasuk Vav. Because the victory is not the victory of Moshe Rabbeinu. The victory is the victory of all of Kali Yisrael. Let's turn to Pasuk Vav. We're, we're going to read a lot of Psukim fairly quickly. There is not much by way of Mepharshim, not much by way to talk about. But I think it's important before we start to take a look at the three pictures on the screen. The three pictures on the screen are three different readings from the Torah. I, I specifically wanted you to see the text as it would appear in a Chumash. More specifically, this is kind of how it would appear if it was written in a scroll. In the Torah itself, if you were to look at Sefer Yushua, if you had a, a scroll of it, you would have a column all the way down of the Melech, and then on the other column, the other Melech. And if you take a look all the way on the left, you'll see Art Scroll's rendition as opposed to Sparia's rendition of the 10 sons of Haman. We just read it shortly ago on Purim. Again, the same thing. We have a column, a column, and in both cases, there's an empty space in the middle. If you take a look, though, at Kriyas Yamso, the Shira in the middle, you'll notice that it's, it's sort of a little bit different. You have a couple words, a couple words, space. And then in the next line, you have one big one. Now, if you've ever been a, uh, a builder of Lego or blocks, probably blocks, or even if you watch how good stonework is done, you'll notice that it is very rare. It's something that is intended to be a big, strong building is built where you put one piece on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. The weight doesn't support itself so well, and eventually it tumbles. Whereas if you take a brick, and a brick, and a brick, and then you layer the next ones, not directly, but like that, and like that, and like that, you end up getting a stronger foundation, a stronger building, and you can build much, much, much higher. As I as I walk sometimes through my chanaya, through my parking lot, I'll notice there's a lot of stonework on the on the homes. And the, the stonework probably on the outside somewhat reflective of what the stonework on the inside looks like. And it's it's always like that. It's not built big pile, big pile, big pile. And so that's I think an important note to 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 watch as we start our Pesukim. Pasuk Zayin. Ve'elam al-chi ha'aretz ha'shorikai Yehoshua b'nei Yisrael be'ever yarden yama mi'bal gad mi'bikat al-hon gad har ha'chalak oles se'irah b'tna Yehoshua l'shifte Yisrael Yerusha k'mach l'kotam. We have now turned our attention not to the east, but we're now miyama. We're on the west side of the Jordan. And what happened? Yehoshua u'v'nei Yisrael. Again, important to note, the Jewish people are prominently, prominently listed here. And they, they conquer all of these areas. Bahar, oh, and, and the Pasuk makes it clear. Right? As the Pasuk ends, it, t- it tells us that what did Yoshua do? He gave it to the Jewish people, gave it to the Shvatim, as it was divided. 
the mountains and the valleys, the, the springs, the desert, the southern desert, and all six nations, the Chiti, the Amori, the Knani, the Prizi, the Chivi, the Yusi. Of course, Kirgashi is the one that is absent. They left, unlike the Givonites that made peace, everyone else went to war. So we're told all that. The king of Yericho is one, the king of, of Ai, that's by Beit El, is one. Melch Yushalayim Echad, Melch Havron Echad, Melch Yarmud Echad, Melch Lachish Echad, Melch Yiglon Echad, Melch Gezer Echad. This should sound familiar to all of us. The, this is the order of the kings. Yericho, Ai, peace with Givon, and then the coalition of Yerushalayim, Hebron, Yarmut, Lachish, and Eglon. And then in that battle, they defeat also the king of Gezer. Now, a couple of important things to know from the Malvin. The Malvin says, It's important, the Malvin says, to note that as much as he defeats 31 kings, which is great, there's still a lot of land that is left unconquered. The Malvin then goes on to also share on Pasuk Tet, an important one as well, where he, he just wants us to know that um, while it's true that the kings were conquered, the, the king was killed, but that doesn't mean that the land was. That's an important thing to understand, especially we know one of them, Yerushalayim, is not conquered, but the king is killed in Makeda. And so that's what we're told. We're given this information, important for us to know. it is important to, to note that there are 31 kings here. It seems strange that there were 31 kings. There is an opinion given by the Medrash that these 31 kings were actually kings that were perhaps some other countries and they sent someone to rule in Eretz Yisrael because everyone, everybody wanted a piece of Eretz Yisrael. It's a beautiful idea that we see till this very day that uh, the world wants to have a piece of Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is not some small country that gets ignored by the world. It is a piece of property that prominently plays into the history of mankind. Ad Hayom Hazes. So we have all of, all of these, um, all these kings. All these kings, they're all listed. Okay. 14 of these kings are newly mentioned. We've never seen them before. But Hatton points out that it's to show that the previous prakim were really just a broad stroke. And now we're given more of the details. But we're only told of the battles that matter, that have historical uh, significance to Tanakh. If they don't, if there's a king, let's say, Kharma, Arad, they don't play into the story at all. So they're just a blip. 
You want the history? Go find the history. Unfortunately, while there's tons of archaeological evidence, find lots of it. In fact, pretty cool, in Chatzor, they not only found the city burnt, which is amazing, but Rabbi Alex Israel said they found the largest deposit of idols. And not only did they find idols there, but the idols were smashed, deformed, broken, chipped, purposely. A piece was missing. Now, if you remember Parak Aleph, what happened? The coalition of kings get together in May Marom. Why May Marom? It's a place that has water. They have chariots. It's unbelievable to put it all together that way. They all get together that way. You don't think they brought their gods? Maybe they brought their gods to a coalition to the coalition meeting in Chatzor before they came to May Marom. They were all there. The Jews got it. They destroyed it and burnt the city. What are they doing? It is a testimonial to the fact that they believe in God, not in idols. And so that's our parak. And if you're keeping track of the clock, you've probably noticed that this is a lot shorter than our typical parak. I'd like to share with you a few more points before we end. The first one is, why is it written this way? Why is the style of our psukim done in this way? Says the Gemara in Megillah. Every one of the shiros in the Torah are written like B'Shalach, like Shirayam, the typical Lego building method. Brick, 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 like that. They're not one on top of the other. Now, that's important for two reasons. First off, it, the, we should, we're, we're told that this one is an outlier. It's not like all the other ones. But we're also being told that this is Shira. This is not a history. But this is Yoshua praising God for his win. We beat all 31 of these kings. Yes, we made it. We did it. It's a big deal. So that's that's one. What's Shira Zu? Shira Zu are the Aserz B'nei Haman. The Kamari Megillah is talking. Why? Because that's also Shira. When they defeat the sons of Haman, there is something that that's the culmination. And that is when they give thanks to God. Whatever little bit of God's presence is in the Megillah, that's it. So he says, why is that? We want to know that their fall is final. There's a big hole in the middle and the wicked fall down that hole, and our hope is that they never come out of there again. That is an important, important message. We hope that there's a finality to this win. These 31 kings are gone, 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 gone forever. And if they're gone forever, so is the Jewish people's win there. And it's the same thing with the Aseris B'nai Amman. Perhaps with Shira Sayyam, it doesn't matter. Paris going to go to Egypt, we're going to go back. To, we're going to go hopefully to the land of Israel. And our the two sides need not meet once again. But here it is important that there is a finality and a totality to the destruction of our enemies. It is important to also note that the content of this parak is actually pretty dry, even for a song. It's pretty, can you imagine a song whose words are this king, this king, this king, this king, this king? It's, it wouldn't be very catchy. And even if it was catchy because it had a good jingle to it, the tune was nice, it's unlikely that people would be like, oh, the lyrics move me. This is one name after another, after another, after another. 
So I want to I want to compare it to the myth of Baal. It is a Baal it is a, uh, a song um, that was uncovered was discovered in Syria in 1929. They're doing some diggings. It's amazing what they what they picked out. They found the myth of Baal, which is roughly written at the same time as Sefer Yoshua. And here's how it goes. It's Anat, who is the uh, the friend, um, the consort of Baal. And this is when she goes does battle against her foes. Anat went to battle in the valley and she fought between the two cities. She killed the people of the coast and she annihilated the men of the east. Heads rolled under her like balls. Hands flew over her like locusts. The warriors' hands like swarms of grasshoppers. She fastened the heads to her back. She tied the hands to her belt and she plunged knee deep into the soldier's blood up to her thighs and the warrior's gore. With a staff, she drove off her enemies with the string of her bow, her opponents. She battled violently and looked and not fought and saw her soul swelled with laughter. Her heart was filled with joy. Anat's soul was exuberant as she plunged knee deep into the soldier's blood up to her thighs in the warrior's gore until she was satisfied. I don't know how many ba- how many how, how much and how many people are not killed. She fought two cities, Joshua 31. How much blood and guts and gore do we see? Really in all of our prakim. Not much. There's a destruction piece. Yes, we're told that the people are killed. We're told that the entire city is burnt. We're even told sometimes that the men, women, and children are destroyed, defeated, annihilated, whatever words you want to use. But we don't have the image of the Jewish people plunging the swords into the hearts of these people. The cities are merely destroyed. Perhaps the one exception to that rule is the five kings. When Yoshua has the generals step on their necks, that's it. One time. And even that, I would say, is a rated PG picture as opposed to this. This, the violence, the gore, the imagery. But why is it? It's because the Torah doesn't care about making a big deal about killing and defeating and blood and guts. It doesn't matter to us. What matters is that the Jewish people conquer the land and that the Jewish people will hopefully create a society, a society built upon values of our Torah, not a society that's built upon killing. And yet we still find ourselves with a moral dilemma. The Jewish people do kill a lot. There's a lot of death and destruction in Sefer Yoshua. So I, I want to take a look. We obviously learn the Torah and Tanakh and believe in its authenticity as a work of God. And Yoshua is really just the continuation of Hamisha Chumshei Torah. I want to take a look for just a moment at some of the sources that the Jewish people are given before they come to Eretz Yisrael. What is it that we're supposed to do before we come into Eretz Yisrael? What's our focus? What's our goal when we get there? So let's take a look at the first one. This is back by the burning bush. He says, I know that the Jewish people have suffered. God says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. And where am I going to take you? To this amazing land. It's a good land. It's a wide land. It's an expansive land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. 
And we're given the six, the six out of the seven nations that live there. What do we know about the land? It's good land. There's milk and honey. And that there is a coalition of kings there. Okay, it's not Mitzrayim. There's not one central figure. There's multiple kings. God says, I'm going to send an angel before you to the land that you're going to. So he says, do not bow down to them and do not um, worship them. Don't do what they say. Destroy them. So he says, what do I want you to do? I want you to, to worship God. And, you're, and if you do that, your bread will be blessed. Everything will be good. No sickness will be there. God says, I'll send my hornet, this, this, uh, this fly of some sort, and it's going it's to uh, chase out the nations of the land. Focus here seems to be what? Don't bow down to their idols. And almost as an afterthought in Pasuk Chavchet, I'm going to chase them out. All six nations, they will be chased out. Again, chased out. What does that mean? We're not told about killing. They'll be chased out, whatever that means. Do not make a covenant with them lest they be a thorn in your side. Like the like that which Egypt did, and like that which Eretz Canaan did, that the land I'm taking you, don't do. God says, I took you from a land that was corrupt, Egypt, one of the most disgusting immoral places upon planet earth and I brought you to Canaan which is just as bad God says don't do that you're not to act the same way and now our last source God says if you leave them there there will be thorns in your side and they will cause problems for you and they'll give you a hard time. And, and what I was going to do to them, they will do to you. That's what God says in Bamidbar Lam Kimmel. Now, there is a pasuk in Devarim, which says, you have to destroy them. But for the most part, if you look at these psukim carefully, the focus is very, very clearly on emptying out the land and making sure that the people are not there to cause you to go astray. And so the question that I have is, why do they have, why are they so bad? And of course, the question that we asked already and answered is, can you, can they stay there if you want them to? If they choose to stay, are they allowed to? And this is what I believe is important to note. What is the difference between idolatry and monotheism? Is it really just a math game? One versus two, one versus many. But Manhattan says actually, it's not. It's not at all. See, the idea that there could be this idol and this idol, even just two, and I worship what, both of them, it means that this idol has power and this idol has power. Neither one of them is absolute, which means that my belief is actually also not absolute. Let's give an example of that. So I live in the land of Israel, where the primary God is the God of rain. But at the same time, 
I also, I live in Beit Shemesh, where the sun is ever present, rain not so much. Perhaps there, I'm going to be torn. Which God is really the God that's all, that I, I put my faith in? Do I put my faith in the rain God or do I put my faith in the sun God? Now, in the winter time, I might be drawn more during those sunless, rainy days to the rain God. And then in the hot, sun-scorching summer, I might be pulled towards the other God. Now, if each of these gods have values and, and, and ideals that are attached to them, then my thought process on which value matters is going to waffle based on the time of year, the time of day, my overall mood. One versus two is not a numbers game, but there is a certain set philosophical pull that's going to be happening here. If I believe in God, there's only one God. He is absolute. What is God saying about the land of Israel? What is God saying about the many people in the land of Israel? God is saying, I'm not into murder. I'm not into bloodshed, even though that was something that was totally acceptable by the ways of the ancient world. God says, I'm actually interested in one primary thing. And that's having a land where the cultural, the spiritual, the religious focus is on one God, one set of values, and those values and that relationship is absolute. There's never the possibility of abandonment. There's never the possibility of even a momentary relationship with a different, with a different deity. My relationship is absolute, 100% fidelity. That is what God is looking for. And so God says, I present to you these 31 kings. What do you want to do with them? I offer them they can stay. But what do they have to do? They need to accept upon themselves the Zionists of Bnei Noach. No idolatry, no cursing God, no murder, no illicit relations, no stealing. You can't chop the limb off an animal. There have to be court systems and justice. Why? Because says God, that's the world I need. And if the nations of the world, the Givonites, want to accept that, then I would be happy to expand Claudius soul to incorporate them in. But if not, if they're looking for something different, if they're looking for something else, they're going to pull you away. And yes, while it's true that in this moment right now, the Jews will be fully faithful to God, what will be in 100 years, 200 years, 400 years. So the Jewish people are instructed very clearly, this is what you need to do if you want to be successful. You must, must, must ensure a society that has 100% fidelity, 100% unity with that, the Jewish people will be successful. Without that, that's how the story will continue to unfold. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us and keep walking in the ways of the prophet.